Amen. Thank you, Donna. What a humbling song. Christ would die for us. Let's take our Bibles, please. Turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. I don't really appreciate all those that uh, participate in our music time or our worship time. And uh, it's a little different in here than it was in the auditorium. It was difficult in the auditorium singing to an empty room. But in here, we, uh, if they use a soundtrack, they don't, we don't even hear the music. It's uh, in their ear, and they sing, and uh, we can't hear each other in here like we do in the auditorium, and so it's just very, very different, and I appreciate uh, these that have been stepping up and singing, even though it's so very difficult uh, under these circumstances, but we want to do our best to be pleasing to the Lord and still have regular services where we can worship together and share the Word of God. Uh, I, I want you to stay tuned after we're done with the message this morning. We want to make sure that we're... You know what? I'm just going to throw out all pretenses right now. It's evening, okay? I've, I've said... I, I know it's supposed to be Sunday morning service, and for you folks watching, you're not foolish, uh, fooled at all, because when the cameras go, you see it's dark outside behind us in the windows, and uh, we're recording the night before so we can fit Sunday school in and all the rest, and I just keep messing it up, so I'm not even going to pretend anymore, all right? And so let's just get that out of the way. Uh, but let me let me uh, uh, have you stay tuned after. We want to give you a couple of announcements that are important. We have an exciting uh, thing happening this Wednesday night. It's a little different than what we're used to, and so we'll explain that at the end of the service. And then uh, I want to give you a little bit of an update about the lockdown. I did some research and trying to find out. And uh, like you, you've read all the different media outlets. And I found uh, what I believe to be closest because it had more facts and more information than anything else. And so don't get all excited. We're not going to be back right away. But I believe we'll be back soon. And I want to kind of just keep you up to date. And I won't have specifics. I'm just going to warn you right now. I won't have specifics. But I just want you to know how how things are progressing. And uh, it's like uh, a t-shirt I saw uh, today. I think I sent it to Calvin and my wife. Uh, they've made a t-shirt. It says Government of Ontario on it. And it says, we'd like to announce that we have an announcement coming up in the upcoming days about an announcement that we will be announcing. And that's about all the information we get anymore is the promise of more announcements. But we'll try to, we'll try to give you some hope anyway, if you'll just stay tuned. But let's look at John chapter 8. John chapter 8. I've been reading through the book of John uh, this last week, and I got to chapter 8, and I didn't get any further, and I just kept reading it over and over, and God really st stirred my heart. And you know, um, reading the Bible will mess up a lot of doctrine that you thought was important. And uh, I just want to look at this, and sometimes I try to look at a passage of Scripture from a different perspective. Not that I want to take it out of context, I don't want to stretch it. I uh, was talking this week with Calvin about the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis is when you take the Word of God and, and, and interpret it with other Scripture, and you just say what it says. You bring it out, you have no preconceived ideas, and you just let the Word of God speak. Eisegesis is when we have an idea and we go looking for a scripture to fit with our ideas, or we force our ideas upon an existing scripture. And I was with a fellow one time that he saw soul winning in every verse of the Bible. No matter what it said, that's a soul winning verse. I see soul winning right there. Even where it says, behold, we have dealt treacherously and corruptly with thee. He saw soul winning somehow. And, uh, you know, there's enough verses in the Bible. You don't have to force your opinions or ideas or soapbox doctrines upon Scripture. But what I mean to say is I try to look at a, a character in this story. I want to see a different perspective. And I begin to look at the heart of these Pharisees. 
This passage of scripture, of course, is about the woman taken in adultery. And I've heard so much about the grace of our Savior, and we will look at that. Of course, I would never want to preach a passage like this without talking about the grace of Jesus. And, and we've looked at this passage, and we talked about the plight of this woman. And, uh, but I, I just want to look this morning, if we will, or, uh, for a few moments, about the trap that these Pharisees set, and what they were trying to do, and what their heart was like. And friends, I'm going to be honest with you, as I read this passage, I, I saw myself so many times. We are so concerned about truth, and don't get me wrong, truth is so important. Jesus said, thy word is truth, and the word of God is important. He said in the Old Testament, thy word have I magnified above thy name. So the word of God is very important. The word we know also, the living word, Jesus, the word became flesh. So the living word and the written word are one. They are so important, and we understand that, and I'm not trying to make light of that in any way. But we sometimes take those things and we twist them and we turn them. And we see here that the Pharisees set this trap for Jesus. You know, that's the lie of Satan right from the beginning. Yea, hath God said. I want you to read it with me tonight, the first 11 verses of John chapter 8. And notice what the Word of God says. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. They which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. What a tender passage of compassion. And Father, so many times I can put myself in the place of that woman and understand that I must stand before Jesus Christ and once again know his forgiveness. And know his cleansing power. But Lord, I also read this passage and see myself in the shoes of the Pharisees. Harsh. Standing so firmly upon the law without any grace. Lord, help us, Lord, to have the right balance in our lives. Speaking the truth with love. Balancing the law with grace. Helping us to understand that 
The law was a schoolmaster to help us to understand, to teach us, to bring us to the point where we know that we have failed God, that we have fallen short, that there's no way we can keep all of his laws and rules, that we are not perfect, that we stand in need of a Savior. So, Father, I pray the word that you'd help us to expose this attitude today. I pray for each one that is listening and watching. Lord, who has ever said, well, they got what they deserved. He had it coming to him. This is what's right and they should be dealt with harshly. Lord, that we would take a moment and understand that we need grace just like anybody else. That we are just sinners like everybody else. So speak to our hearts. Lord, I need your Holy Spirit's presence and power. Fill me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In studying out this passage, I learned something very interesting. I looked at that first verse. The Bible says in verse 1, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. If you will take some time and look up that passage, if you will look up the Mount of Olives, or if you will look up the phrase Mount Olivet, or if you will look up the Garden of Gethsemane, you will find that it only appears a few times in Scripture, but every single time in the New Testament we find it, the Lord Jesus Christ was retreating there to pray. It was there in the Garden of Gethsemane on Mount Olives that Jesus uh, was taken by the soldiers on the night he was crucified. But you'll remember before that in Matthew chapter 24 and I believe Luke chapter 13 that the Bible says he retreated there with Peter, James, and John and he went off a little bit away from them to pray and he came back and found them asleep. And he awoke them and said, could you not watch with me one hour? And he went and he prayed again and he came back and found them sleeping again and he awoke them and the third time he would go and this time... He would say, sleep on. And that's when the soldiers took him. It was a place that Jesus went, and we, we will read in Matthew chapter 24 that he went in the last week of his life after his triumphal entry. The Bible says he went every day. That's where he went, and if you will, I believe he just spent the night there. He would go into Jerusalem for the day and he would cleanse the temple and he would retreat and he would pray and he would go back into Jerusalem and he would teach a little bit more and he'd retreat and he'd pray. And so every day he'd go back and forth and he'd spend some time in prayer and I would submit to you that he was going there to prepare for his passion. He was going there to meet with God and understanding what that final week meant. And he was praying for strength and he was praying for endurance. He was praying that God would help him through this time. And I believe that every night, likely his prayers became more intense as he drew closer to that moment of death. And finally that last night, the Bible says he sweated great drops of blood. And he said, uh, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. It was Jesus prayer closet, if you will. It was his favorite place to find solitude. It was a place where he could steal away and spend some time with his father. There's only one other time in the Bible, and this is what struck me, that we read Jesus went to the Mount of Olives to pray. And it's right here in John chapter 8. And he said, well, why the week of his crucifixion? And then why here? Because here he had to deal with Pharisees. Isn't that interesting? That the times in the Bible, all the times in the Bible we read that Jesus went apart to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane at the Mount of Olives. 
was when he was dealing with his death and he was dealing with these Pharisees. That ought to tell you something about what Christ feels about the Pharisaical attitude. Notice what the Bible says in verse 2. It says, early in the morning he came again to the temple and all the people came unto him and he sat down and taught them and the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman. Notice in verse 2, just very quickly, I'm going to make it a point before we get into our lesson. <coughs> the Bible says as he came, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> into the temple, all the people came unto him. All those that were in the temple for morning prayers, all those that had come to make an offering, all those that had come to worship, they came and they gathered to Jesus and they sat down, or he sat down, it says, and he taught them. Verse 3 says, the scribes and the Pharisees, they brought this woman unto him, I believe, kicking and screaming and dragged her into the midst and set her there. And if you look down in verse 9, it says, and when they uh, heard being convicted by their own conscience, talking about these Pharisees and scribes, they went out one by one, bidding at the eldest, even at the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but he and the woman and the congregation. That's not what the Bible says. They had left too. It does not say that they left when the scribes and the Pharisees went out by one by one, but I believe they left when they dragged this woman to the front of the congregation. You see, what's your point? Good godly people don't want to be around Pharisees either. They don't want to share in that attitude that strives to shame this woman in her sin. And by the way, before we go too far, let me say, she was in sin. I don't want you to think for a moment tonight that I'm going to take a soft position on sin. I believe that what sin is sin and it's what condemns men to a lost eternity. It's what sends people to hell. The Bible says for the wages of sin is death, but the legalist or the Pharisee always preaches the wages of sin is death, but they never had, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want you to notice some things about these Pharisees tonight. First of all, their misplaced focus. Their misplaced focus. I want you to notice that as they misplaced their focus, they focused on the punitive nature of Moses' law. They're the punitive nature of Moses' law. The Bible says, uh, verse 3, And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses... In the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? They didn't look at this woman and say, here's a candidate of somebody we can restore. Here's somebody that needs help getting out of sin. Here's somebody that we can come alongside and encourage and love and bring them back to God. And so they said, no, here's a woman that we can stone. They focused on the punitive nature of Moses' law. I want you to notice, first of all, they purposed to shame her. The Bible says in verse four, they send in master, this woman was taken in adultery. And look at those next four words, in the very act. I'm gonna ask for the opinion of those in this room tonight. Do you think they let her have time to get her clothes on? says they took her in the very act. 
I just don't see this group of scribes and Pharisees busting down a bedroom door and saying to this woman, now come on, get some clothes on and wrap yourself up modestly because we're about to go out and have a fair trial. I want to suggest to you tonight that they dragged her in front of everybody in the temple court. Think about where they were. What, what God called a house of prayer and Jesus said, you've turned to a den of thieves. They made it into a place of lasciviousness and they dragged this woman caught in the very act in front of the entire congregation that Jesus was teaching and they placed her there in the midst. They purposed on shaming her. You know, it's the attitude of a Pharisee, isn't it? To try to shame somebody. Let me tell you this, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. To my shame, I'm a sinner. To my shame, I fail. I don't need you or anybody else pointing it out. The Holy Spirit does a, 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 a job in my life all the time. But when we become pharisaical and we begin to act like the scribes and the Pharisees, we, we delight in shaming others. We delight in putting people down for their sin. We seem to forget what we have done and why we stand in need of prayer and why we stand in need of grace and we point out the sins of others. And these Pharisees were chief in that regard, so they purposed to shame her. Secondly, they purposely singled her out. The Bible says in verse four, they say in master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. I suggest to you tonight, where is the man? Where is the other party? She did not commit adultery all by herself. So they purposed that they were going to single her out. There was some agenda involved here. And I, I wonder even if they had sent a man in under her to cause her to fall into the sin that they might make an example of Jesus. They decided to single her out. But I want you to notice this, and this is what really hits you. They predetermined to stone her. Look at verse 5. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? They focused on the punishment. There was no desire to try to restore this woman. There was nothing in their hearts that says we can forgive her for this. By the way, their greatest king was an adulterer, King David. How many times do we read in the Bible of, of men that fell and not one of them were stoned according to the law? But this woman, it was predetermined that we would stone her. They focused on the punitive nature of Moses' law. They looked at her as if she was a sinner to ambush rather than someone who was fallen they could restore. That's what Pharisees do. They misplace their focus. They put it on the punitive nature of Moses' law, and secondly, they put it on the pharisaical nature of their motives. Notice the pharisaical nature of motives. What was their motive here? Number one, to abuse the sinner. To beat them down. Verse three says, And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman. <clears throat> How many scribes and Pharisees does it take? to bring one woman. This was a parade. The Bible doesn't even say, at minimum we look at this, and minimally we have to say there's at least four men there. Scribes is plural and Pharisees is plural. There had to be at least two of each. But I think there was more. 
Because it does not say a few scribes and a couple Pharisees. It does not say some of the scribes and some of the Pharisees. It says the scribes, addressing them as a group, and the Pharisees. I believe who was ever around the temple that morning they must have looked out and saw Jesus teaching and drawing all these people, all of the people it says, all those who were sacrificing, all those who were over here that were, that were praying and others who were worshiping and perhaps even some of the Levites had come out to join this congregation and Jesus was teaching them and the Pharisees said, let's do something. Let's go find a woman. You know who she is, that, that woman on the other side of town, that woman who has the reputation. Let's, let's find out what she's doing, and if she's doing something lewd, let's drag her before Jesus. Let's abuse her. And this parade of men went and they took her, and they brought her before the Lord. You know, it's interesting that sometimes... When somebody is overtaken by sin, we would rather abuse them than restore them. They got what they deserved. We cut them off and we put them down. We cast them out. Now, don't get me wrong. Continuous sin is a problem that needs to be dealt with. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is writing to the church of Corinth, there's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and he says to them, he says, there's sin named among you that should not even be named, that a man should have his father's wife. There was a crudeness in the church and a lewdness and it crept in and, and, and he says, here's the problem. Not that there was sin, but that you rejoiced rather than mourned. You took it to your credit that, oh, we just, you know, we kind of just showed a lot of love and we let things go. But no, you should have mourned and you should have cast it out. Listen, I'm not talking about uh, an ongoing sin, but I'm talking about when somebody has fallen and they are broken and we have an opportunity to restore them. We should not abuse them. But this was just a matter of abuse. So the pharisaical nature of their motives was to abuse the sinner. And secondly, it was to aggrandize themselves. I, just, I was going for alliteration, so I used a big word. It just means to make yourself look good. To make yourself look big. Notice what they did in verse 3. Look at the nerve of these guys. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery... And when they had set her in the midst, can you imagine Sunday morning at Bethel Baptist Church, the pandemic is lifted, everything is back to, won't that be wonderful? The buses are running, the kids are here shouting amen again, the seniors are comfortable coming back to church, we have 300 people packed in the auditorium, shoulder to shoulder, singing victory in Jesus. And then we have a special guest. And I'm going to say, you know what? Jesus is going to preach this morning. Man, that'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Can you imagine? And some Pharisees in town have the nerve to barge in in the middle of his preaching and throw somebody at his feet in front of the pulpit. I wouldn't appreciate it if they did that to me, but I, to Jesus? But that's what these guys did. Jesus is preaching to two, three, four hundred people. A mass of people has, have, are sitting there and he is sitting down and he is teaching them from the word of God, telling them about a better way. And these guys bust through, it says, into the midst and put this woman right on display. They had no respect for anybody. They're saying, my agenda is more important than yours. 
That's the attitude of this Pharisee. You'll notice those who Jesus were teaching, I believe that's when they dispersed. The Bible doesn't tell us, but we just know that later on they're no longer there. But I thought they don't want to be around these Pharisees. They don't want to be a part of shaming this woman any further. But here's the third attitude we see. What is the Pharisee's motive? The third thing is to antagonize the Savior. To antagonize the Savior. The Bible says so. Verse 5. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him. That they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. You know, a great way to handle a Pharisee is just to ignore them. Verse 7, so when they continued asking him, they were trying to antagonize him. They pushed him for an answer. They were trying to pit him against the law. The Bible says they were tempting him. Some might misunderstand and take the other extreme that I am preaching that God is not against sin and nothing could be further from the truth. I want you to understand that, again, I'll just repeat myself, sin destroys Sin, when it's had its end, is death. The wages of sin is death. Sin destroys families and lives. I understand that. But Jesus wants to restore. Paul reminds us, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fall, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one, considering thyself also, lest thyself be tempted. The Bible tells us over and over again we are to reach out to the lost, we are to love the lost, we are to love the sinner. But friends, what about those that fall among us? You say, well, we don't shame people like that. Then why don't they come back? If somebody truly has the spirit of Christ and they fall into sin, can they find restoration at our church? Can they find love here? Can they find the spirit of Christ or do they see the spirit of the Pharisees? Oh, friends, we need to make sure we have the right attitude and not a Pharisaical one. We've noticed, first of all tonight, the, their misplaced focus, but I want you to see the message of forgiveness. The message of forgiveness. First of all, Jesus gives a humbling answer. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said to them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Well, that's humbling. Go ahead, if you're perfect. If you're sinless, throw a stone. No? Go ahead. If you're without sin... If you're better than her, you see, the problem is these Pharisees were self-righteous. This was a humbling answer to them. I want you to notice that, first of all, sinners are equal in our offense. We're all the same. The Bible says in Revelation that those that were cast in the lake of fire were adulterers and whoremongers, but also liars. We're all sinners, we all stand in the grace, need of grace of God. So sinners are equal in their offense, but they're also equal in our opportunity. We can come to Jesus Christ and find grace. And that's what this woman did. We see that they were forced to have an honest assessment. It says in verse 9, And they which heard it, 
being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one. Beginning at the eldest, even end to the last. And Jesus was left alone, the woman standing in the midst. You know, when you come to face to face with the grace of Christ, it forces you to take stock. We see that it was a grace that convicts the sinner. Again, I don't want you to think tonight that, I, that I'm preaching, hey, we need to go easy on sin. Listen, sin destroys. But listen to what Titus 2 says, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this pers- uh, uh, present world. Jesus himself said to her in verse 11, go and sin no more. He wasn't excusing her sin. He was forgiving her sin. It's a grace that convicts the sinner. It's a grace that confounds the self-righteous. They all left. They couldn't understand this forgiveness because they were all righteous in their own eyes. We see thirdly, and here's what I really like. Jesus gives them a humbling answer which caused an honest assessment. But look at this, a heavenly appointment. Notice verse 9. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go. And sin no more. This heavenly appointment, we notice, first of all, she was found in his presence. Everybody was gone. Do you know the biggest mistake the Pharisees made? That if they really wanted to take this woman that was caught in adultery and take her out and stone her, they should have never brought her to Jesus. They're some of the greatest soul winners I've ever seen. They should have never brought her to Jesus because when you come to Jesus, you find grace. The Bible says when dust settled and everybody had left, it was just Jesus and her. She was found in his presence. She was forgotten by the Pharisees. He says, where are thine accusers? And she was forgiven by his power. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. You know, as we're talking about the difference here tonight of the Pharisees and Jesus Christ, Let me give you one more thing in conclusion. Let me show you the marks of followers. The marks of followers. What do the disciples look like? The Pharisees had disciples, and Jesus had disciples. What do they look like? Turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 23. We'll see first what it says about the Pharisees. You know, sometimes we we fall into that kind of the ilk of the Pharisees. We get angry about something, we get self-righteous about something, and we look down on somebody because their sin is far greater than mine, so we think. We think that we should stand upon the law of God. Listen, Jesus knows you can't stand upon the law, therefore he gave himself a, a ransom to save us from the law. The Bible says when he paid the price of our sin on the cross, he, he, he was nailed to the cross, but the very ordinances that uh, accused us were also nailed to the cross. 
That doesn't mean that we cast out the Bible and we don't obey it. No, the Bible says that one of the, one of the marks of the disciple we'll learn about with Jesus is, is those that keep his word are his disciples. If you obey me, you are my disciples indeed. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 23 about the disciples of the Pharisees. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers." But all their works they do, for to be seen of men, they make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, there's no humility in a Pharisee. Verse eight, but be not ye called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. Call no man your father upon the earth. Are you listening, Roman Catholics? For one is your father, which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be based. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisee hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer, therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Listen to this. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees hypocrites, for ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, that's a disciple, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Woe unto ye blind guides which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. He fools and blind. For whether is greater the gold of the temple that sanctifieth the gold. I'm, I'm going to stop there. I can read the whole chapter. And it goes on and on about the attitude of the Pharisees. Their disciples are twice fit for hell. Oh, we don't want to lead people like that. But Jesus, the Bible says, if you'll turn to John chapter 13... It tells us about his disciples. John chapter 13, in verse 35. And I, I like this. You know, there's so much said about the disciples of a Pharisee, all those things we we're reading and more. But the disciples of Christ are this. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another. That's the difference. John chapter 8 Put yourself in the shoes of those Pharisees. Have you ever acted like that? I know I have. Right was right and wrong was wrong. And, and by the way, it still is. But when somebody does wrong, the Bible says, you which are spiritual, restore such one in the spirit of meekness. These Pharisees, the Bible says, the scribes and the Pharisees all went to take this woman to bring her before Jesus in the congregation, they set out to shame her. Do you know what Matthew 18 says? Moreover, if thy brother trespass against thee, go to him. One person. And if he hear thee, you have gained thy brother. But if he hear thee not, take a witness. That's two people. It's a long way before it gets to the congregation of the church. Sin is shameful enough that we are not to shame people, but we are to lift people up. 
to help them back, to help them find Christ again. I, I, I love the idea that the biggest mistake the Pharisees made was bringing her to Jesus because when she met Jesus, she was set free. Friend, I, I had to go to the Lord and ask his forgiveness for the times that I'd acted like a Pharisee or I hadn't sought what was best for the sinner. You know, I'm reminded of the life of Joseph. They said, we're only alive because of our father, but now that our father is dead, Joseph will surely. And they went to Joseph and they said, now you promised. Our father said that you're to leave us alone, that you're not to hurt us, that you're to forgive us. And Joseph said, am I in the place of God? And he wept in compassion and forgiveness. Would to God that we would do the same. We'd act more like Christ. I, 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 I struggle with a message like this because I don't want you to think, uh, we're, we're going all soft on sin. No, no. Sin destroys. I hate alcohol. I hate those things that we preach against because it destroys lives and families. Don't get me wrong. And when there's continual habitual sin, we need to deal with it as a church. We don't, want, we don't want leaven in the church. We don't want sin in the church. But to the very best of our ability, we are to show grace and try to help somebody back. If they refuse to come back, then we deal with it biblically. But as long as much lieth within us, we had to show them the spirit of Christ, not the spirit of a Pharisee. Let's pray. Father, help us tonight. Speak to our hearts. Help us, Lord, to act like Jesus and not like the Pharisees. Lord, we love you. And Lord, we remember that time where the old accuser came after us, told us we were no good, told us that we were filthy and rotten and defiled. But Jesus Christ loved us anyway. Oh God, humble us with that thought tonight. Help us, Lord, to have a compassion and a heart for people and a heart for souls. Speak to us, we pray. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Daniel's playing a little hymn of invitation. If God has spoke to your heart right where you are, would you spend some time with the Lord?